Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. Today we are talking all about IVF protocols. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford. I'm a board certified OBGYN and REI. I am a fertility doctor and I am co-founder of Fora Fertility, a fertility practice in Austin, Texas. One thing that I know for sure from the bottom of my heart is that IVF is not equal everywhere and not every clinic and not every doctor is going to explain things in the way that maybe you learn or that you need or even does what is best. So the truth is when we dive in and we talk about IVF, the protocol is the combination of medications that we utilize to get the job done. And to cut to the chase, there are many practices that just do the same protocol for everybody because it's easy. It's easier for their nurses. Their nurses don't have to learn as much. It is just very protocol. They can cycle a bunch of patients. And even when you do not get the outcome that you want, you will see them do the same protocol over and over. So in this episode, I'm going to dive into IVF, how we choose a protocols, some of the basics that you should know, and you're going to get some red flags and some questions that you can ask or think about if you yourself are going through IVF. Now, before we dive in, I do just want to do a few housekeeping items. So every week on the podcast, I answer some of your fertility questions at the very end of every episode. You can ask these questions on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Some of them will be answered there on Instagram. Some of them will be answered here on the podcast, and some will be answered in the newsletter. The newsletter I love, you're going to find some of my favorite things, my favorite plant-based or healthy recipes, things that I'm up to, but also that is where we took fertility in the news, which is my hot take on all of the fertility topics you're seeing everywhere. And then also you're going to get an answer to a fertility question. So it's just a great way, not spammy, but to get some education. And you can sign up nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. You can also call in and leave your fertility question on the voicemail. These are my absolute favorite episodes. We do them about once every five to six weeks, and we are about to increase it to do the fertility Q&A once a month because we're getting so many fantastic voicemails. So you can call 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672. Leave your voicemail and we can dive in. The first thing that is really important to understand if we're going to talk about IVF is you have to understand briefly what is normal and what we are trying to do in general with the protocol. And then that's going to allow you to understand why we might choose or what is really different in these protocols. 
So if we think about IVF, most people have heard or they understand IVF to some extent, but really we need to talk about the ovary. So remember, inside the ovary, you are born with all the eggs you are ever going to have. If you've been around here or you've seen me in clinic, you know that I use a reference. Imagining that there is a vault inside your ovary where all of your eggs are kept. Inside that vault, you're born with all the eggs you're ever going to have. They are going to run out at some point, and that is menopause or ovarian failure. What is actually happening is every single month, you're going to have a group of eggs coming out of the vault. And each of these eggs grows inside a follicle, and a follicle is a small fluid-filled structure you can see on ultrasound. So the brain is going to send out follicle stimulating hormone or FSH. FSH is well named. This actually starts to be sent out from the pituitary gland while you're on your period. So while you are bleeding, this FSH is being sent out because the body knows you are not pregnant because you're on your period and it wants to get another egg ready for ovulation. FSH is so well named because what it does is stimulate just one follicle to grow. There is amazing feedback between the ovary and the brain, meaning the brain doesn't see what is happening inside the ovary. Imagine you and your best friend, you live in different places, but you talk on the phone all the time. The brain has no idea how many eggs you have, how many are outside the vault, how many are growing that month, but it can hear estrogen. That is the signal that feeds back to the brain to tell it a follicle is growing a follicle is ready for ovulation, a follicle is not growing, we are not pregnant. So estrogen is what an egg makes as it becomes more and more mature. So throughout the course of a normal cycle, your FSH will rise. This will stimulate one follicle to grow. As that follicle grows, it starts making estrogen. Your FSH then drops so you don't get more follicles growing. When your estrogen is high enough for long enough, this signals to the brain, we are mature. And that is going to allow your brain to send out a surge of LH or luteinizing hormone, which is going to then allow you to ovulate after you ovulate. When you ovulate, that follicle is rupturing, the egg is being released, and then that follicle is reforming into the corpus luteum. And the corpus luteum is going to make progesterone based on LH pulses from the brain up and down and up and down throughout the entire luteal phase. If you get pregnant, then that pregnancy is going to come in and implant and make HCG. And we say this rescues the corpus luteum and allows it to keep making progesterone. And if it doesn't, what is then going to happen is the HCG is going to not be present. So the corpus luteum cannot survive. It can only live about two weeks. It dies, progesterone drops, you get a period, and the process starts over. All of the eggs that were available in that month that did not ovulate, they die. So any given month, you are losing many more than just the one egg that you ovulate. This is important because this ties into ovarian reserve, but also how many eggs you can get. So if we are being as simple as possible, in IVF, the whole goal is to try to get all of the eggs that are outside the vault in that given month to grow at the same pace and reach maturity together and then take them out of the body so we can fertilize them grow them in the lab to an implantation stage embryo called a blastocyst, plus minus do genetic testing, and then we can either do a fresh transfer five days later after we have retrieved them, or we can proceed with a frozen embryo transfer. So there's intricacies to the IVF process. Do you do ICSI? Do you do genetic testing? And 
These are different than what is your protocol. So when we really talk about your protocol, we're talking about the type of medications that we are using to get the job done. And the job is to get all of the eggs that are outside the vault to grow. And your protocol should be selected for you based on your age, your antral follicle count, your AMH, prior response in any cycles you've had in the past, and your medical history. Now, the decision about certain things about IVF is extremely important. Are you doing a fresh transfer or a frozen transfer? Are you doing genetic testing or not? And these are separate yet important IVF questions that should be answered. I have some videos on fresh and frozen transfer, and I have YouTube videos, and I have podcast episodes. So you can look at transfer intricacies there. I have a good YouTube describing the difference. The short answer difference is a fresh transfer is one embryo is not getting frozen. It's getting put into your body. We have fallen less and less in favor of doing that because we see that obstetrical outcomes for the vast majority of people are going to be better when an embryo is implanted in a more normal environment, which is not when your estrogen level is 3,000 from a fresh IVF cycle. We also do not do genetic testing if you're doing a fresh transfer, and you also don't have the full information about what you've gotten from the cycle. So when IVF started, and embryo freezing wasn't really good, fresh transfer was where it was. And this is when we put tons of embryos inside people. This predates me and I've been in the field for 10 years. This is where people would do transfer of high order of embryos because they didn't trust their freezing process. Now the freezing is so good. I will tell you that an embryo does not survive a biopsy, a thaw and a freeze about 1% of the time. And clinically it is less than that. Meaning at least in our lab, I do well over a hundred transfers a year, hundreds. And I will have at most, our clinic will have one embryo not survive the freeze thaw. So it's well less than that, but most clinics will quote you about a 1% non-survival rate for a blastocyst embryo, even with PGT testing. And that's really different than it used to be. So it makes sense that fresh transfer used to be the standard. It would save you money and it save you embryos if they didn't have good freezing thawing. But now that we do, most of us are doing a frozen transfer, synchronizing embryo to endometrium, normalizing the environment, getting better pregnancy rates and better birth outcomes, allowing for understanding how many blastocysts you really have and are they genetically normal. So to me, it is by far and away my preference for most people. Okay. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No line shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. 
Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. I digress. What we're going to focus on is the protocol. So everybody, when you have a group of eggs comes out of the vault, that's considered your ovarian reserve. And we can check that number by doing a vaginal ultrasound and counting the follicles that we see. This is called your antral follicle count or your AFC. Your goal is to get all those follicles to grow. So your AFC is probably the very best you're going to do because it's hard. Your ovary does not want to have 20 babies at one time. So it doesn't want to allow 20 eggs all to grow to maturity at the same pace. We are trying to do something your body doesn't want to do because it is wired to not have 20 babies at one time. Your unique ovarian reserve is really important. AMH is another marker of ovarian reserve, and I use both of these together. AMH is anti-mullerian hormone. AMH is made from the cells that surround all of the follicles outside the vault. When you have more eggs in the vault, more come out every month. Therefore... When you are generally younger, you'll have a higher egg count and a higher AMH, and you can get more eggs in an IVF cycle than if you are older or you have fewer eggs. Remember that everybody's born with a number and that number is different. Everybody runs out of eggs and the pace of the decline is different. Things like chemotherapy, smoking cigarettes, endometriosis can impact your ovarian reserve. There's a lot of other things, autoimmune disease, genetics, environmental toxins that also can impact your ovarian reserve. Most people who go into premature ovarian failure, we do not know why. And so just because you're young doesn't mean you're going to get a normal number of eggs. But generally, the whole process is going to be easier when you are young because you also are going to have the best egg quality that you're ever going to have. So egg quality and egg quantity are separate things. When we check your AFC and your AMH, we're trying to get an estimate that's going to help us choose the protocol. Remember that your antral follicle count can change by 30% any given month. So if you come into my clinic and I count 14 and then you go through your cycle and we get 11, It's not that we didn't get three, it's a different month and it's a 30% difference. It's just how the cards fell that month. Now, if I counted 14 and we only get three, something is well off and you would be mind blown that clinics do not have open dialogue and communication with patients and they do not cancel a cycle when they should. To me, a protocol's goal is to try to get as many eggs as possible. We look at that range of normal based on your AMH and your AFC and we're trying to gauge during the monitoring Are we achieving that goal? And if we're not, we should cancel the cycle and try a different protocol. And there are exceptions. If your insurance is running out and this is your only time or you're going through chemotherapy and this is just whatever we get what we get, or you have unlimited benefits. So any eggs are better than none eggs. So there's always extreme examples. And it's ultimately 
though something that should be discussed. And too often I will look through somebody's records and see somebody who underperformed in an IVF cycle who never had it discussed with them. And it's just mind blowing. So the goal of the protocol is to get all the eggs we think we can to grow. And then when we think about what is really happening, I gauge a protocol's number one sense of success by how many mature eggs did we get. And then based on that, I might make some tweaks if we're doing another cycle, dose of medication, length of the trigger, the exact type of the protocol. Ultimately, the protocol has some influence on your embryo quality, but really not as much because that's all determined by egg quality and sperm quality. So progression and culture is generally not really related to protocol. There are always exceptions and somebody who gets a high egg number, but it's having really poor progression and culture. Sometimes we don't have many tools and changing a protocol is something we might try. But really when I want you to think about your protocol, what I'm thinking about is did I get as many mature eggs as possible? And this confuses people. And I'll just say this before I dive into the different types of protocols. Success is relative because we think of success as getting normal embryos or getting pregnant. But if you're older and your antral follicle kind of six and we get six mature eggs, but you had no normal embryos because four fertilized and two grew out and you're age 38 and we would expect a third of them normal and a third of two happened to be zero in this case, that is a sad outcome, but it's not an unexpected outcome. The protocol actually did its job perfectly because we were expecting to get six mature eggs and we did. So remember that success from a protocol standpoint might feel different than success from a cycle standpoint. So understanding the end point is really important in evaluating the protocol. All right, so remember that all protocols are based on nature and the natural progression of trying to get you to ovulate, which is FSH stimulates an egg to grow. As the egg grows, it makes estrogen and feeds back to tell the brain one egg is already growing. All protocols are trying to manipulate this system in some way. In general, we're going to give you more FSH than the pituitary gland would normally make. Therefore, you have an increase in the number of follicles developed. However, the brain and the ovary are best friends and they're in very tight communication. And the ovary doesn't want to have 20 babies if your antral follicle count is 20. And so we really have to break up this brain and ovary communication. And that's a lot what we try to do with either lead in or suppression so that we can override this natural desire to not just have one egg get to maturity. Okay, so typically protocols are named for the suppression that you're using and there are so many different types. There's a spontaneous antagonist, there's an estrogen-primed antagonist, there's a birth control pill antagonist, there's a long lupron or a lupron down regulation. You can overlap that with birth control or do it in the luteal phase. There's a lupron stop or halt where you stop the lupron. There's a lupron flare. There's something called a delayed start. There's a clomid flare. There's a letrozole antag. There's duostem. And there's probably more. But this is a good idea that there are a lot of choices here. Not every doctor does every single protocol, and that's okay. You do want somebody who is familiar with a protocol. Follicles act differently, are mature at different sizes. You manipulate them differently. So most physicians have a handful of these that they like in different scenarios. Low reserve, high reserve, this medical condition, endometriosis, PCOS, et cetera, et cetera. Most people don't do every single one all the time. And that is okay. You never want to force a protocol. You would never want to go to a doctor and say, I want you to do a delayed start. 
if that doctor has never done that before, that, that's not ideal for you. If for some reason you feel strongly that you want a certain type of protocol, and maybe you would, you might need to change doctors and that is okay too. So this is not necessarily to tell you which exact protocol you should have because to be honest, that is trial and error. We start with the protocol that makes the most sense based on the data we have, but every single person is different and every protocol is different. You might respond differently to the protocol I think is absolutely perfect for you. Again, if your doctor always uses the same protocol, red flag, red flag, red flag. If they can tell you before they know anything about you, this is the protocol we do. You will start birth control pills. You will use an antagonist and they don't know anything about you. I am highly concerned. There really are four different parts to the protocol. So we have the lead in medication, which can be spontaneous, which is nothing. It can be a luteal start of something. It can be birth control pills, estrogen, testosterone, ovulation blockers, which are antagonist. Then you have a suppression. Every protocol needs a suppression. Suppression is preventing you from ovulating. So when you ovulate, that normal signal is coming from high levels of estrogen. And remember, the brain doesn't really know what's happening in the ovary. So if we don't prevent ovulation in some way, your body will just ovulate and that defeats the purpose. Stimulation is usually with FSH. That's really the hormone that gets eggs to grow. There's also a combination of FSH, LH, there's Clomid, Letrozole, Lupron, low dose HCG. So there's, there's choices here and I'm going to go through them all. And then there's also trigger shots, which can be with HCG or Lupron. So there's a lot of different things happening here. Now, when we're looking at this, I do want to say one thing. Not everybody does a lead-in. A spontaneous is not a lead-in. I'm a big believer that a lead-in is preferred. And this is the analogy I'm going to use. If you imagine that FSH is the food for the eggs. If you starve the eggs for a short period of time, aka you cut off FSH supply, the eggs are then going to become more sensitive to FSH because they haven't seen it. They're going to open up those FSH receptors and they're all going to start out on the starting line together. I use this terrible analogy all the time. If I have a nest of baby birds and the baby birds are hungry and FSH is their food, if the mommy bird comes in with one worm, the biggest bully bird is going to take that worm and it's going to grow bigger and stronger than the rest of them. That's what happens normally, right? One follicle gets all the FSH, it grows, that egg matures, the rest of them die. If I starve all the birds, they're all equally small, hungry, and ready for worms. And then if I come in with bunches of worms, enough worms for every single bird, now they're going to all grow together. It's not just going to be that big bully one. So that's really what I'm trying to achieve here. So a spontaneous protocol is one that is off your period. It is always an antagonist or an ovulation blocker for suppression. This is an example. You're going to call with your period and come in for a baseline. We'll do an ultrasound to make sure things look good, and then you'll start your cycle. You have no calendar until your period begins. It might seem rushed, and sometimes this is the only option. And a person who needs an antagonist cycle Let's use somebody who has a very high ovarian reserve who needs an antagonist. That's because they're at risk for ovarian hyperstimulation. Antagonist cycles, because they allow a Lupron trigger, help prevent OHSS. But let's say that you have factor V light and you have a clotting disorder and you can't take birth control pills or estrogen. Then I have no choice but to do a spontaneous antag. So I do this, but it is not my 
preferred option for every single person. So to me, this is one I like to use if there's an indication. Otherwise, I think I get better results if I lead in with birth control or estrogen for an antagonist cycle. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Birth control pills is ethanol estradiol and a variety of types of progesterone. That EE stops FSH secretion from the brain, therefore primes the follicles to be more responsive like we talked about. Again, you can't use if there's any contraindication to estrogen. It does allow more flexibility. It allows planning. It can overlap with some other lead-in options or suppressive options. And it's really cheap, easy, and effective. Pretty much well-tolerated. It allows you to get a calendar and time everything out. Now, some people are sensitive. And sometimes if you've had long-term use, you can over-suppress the ovaries and a break may be indicated. Estrogen very similarly stops the FSH secretion from the pituitary gland and primes the follicles. The hard thing is that it has to be very perfectly timed in the luteal phase and then your cycle must start with your period because this is part of what really happens naturally. And if you don't start that FSH stimulation on the exact right day, you're going to be in a place where you're not going to see the outcome you want. So you really need to make sure that you have flexibility if you're doing this protocol. You must have a period. You must ovulate to use this protocol for the most part. There's a few exceptions, but if you have irregular cycles, really hard to do this one. And you can't use it if there's any contraindication to estrogen again. But this is also sometimes one that patients may have prior asynchrony, so their follicles aren't growing together, or you need an antagonist protocol, or you are oversuppressed with birth control pills. So less flexibility is the con, but overall, it's a nice protocol. Testosterone is a steroid hormone. I mean, we all know about it because it's considered the male hormone. And the thought here is that it increases your ovarian response because it impacts the feedback in the follicles to gonadotropins. The typical treatment is three to six weeks before you begin the IVF cycle. It's usually either transdermal, so on your skin or an intramuscular shot. And it sometimes has bad side effects. So I am not the biggest fan of this one, but people will do it, especially for those who have low ovarian reserve. And then an antagonist cycle blocks FSH and LH release. It is very short acting, must use it at the same time every day, but it can be led as a lead in because it's so short acting and 
undergoing that same process of trying to prevent the brain from sending out FSH. This is known as a GnRH antagonist. That's really what the medication is. We call it an antag. Common trade names are Ganarelix and Cetratide. They're the same, just different brands. So those are our common lead-ins, things you might do before you begin the stimulation. And then we have a variety of suppressions. So Lupron is probably one of the most classic ones. It essentially causes the pituitary gland to release all of its FSH and LH, but then the pituitary is depleted, has no more, and cannot surge or send out the LH surge. Lupron usually needs to start before the stimulation in order to work for a suppression. It's also called a long cycle or a down regulation cycle. When it is stopped, that's another version called a Lupron halt or a Lupron stop. Sometimes this can be good for people who are very sensitive or have low ovarian reserve. Lupron lasts in your body about 12 days. And so it's not super short acting, but that means if your cycle goes longer than that, you're going to see your team add in another form of suppression like an antagonist. Lupron's officially a GnRH agonist, so it causes you to release. It stimulates release of all that FSH and LH, but then there's no more. On the opposite end, you have that antagonist. Again, it blocks FSH, LH release. I mentioned this in the lead-in, but it's really more classic as a suppression. Very short-acting. Must use the same time every day. Late use can definitely result in ovulation. And you start this, it's expensive. Once the follicle or estrogen is getting to a certain point that it could trigger you to ovulate. You don't need to start this at the very beginning of the cycle. So most people are starting this somewhere between days five to eight, depending on how fast or slow your follicles are growing. Any cycle without Lupron or without progesterone needs an antagonist. It is a suppressive agent to prevent you from ovulating. Progesterone is a newer medication. So in studies, well, Progesterone is not newer, but used in this context is newer. We've seen medroxyprogesterone or Provera starting cycle day two or three in an antagonist cycle. And this has been where you're not using Lupron, but instead of using the ovulation blocker, you're using progesterone. And you can even use it with Lupron trigger if that's been studied in egg donor cycles. So that's nice because it can be used for high responders. This can save costs because the antagonist is so expensive. And this is a oral pill, not an injection. So that's a pro. There's only been one study looking at it. So this is still not common practice, but I definitely know of circumstances where this could be a good option. And then we have our stimulations. So FSH is the classic stimulation. It is follicle stimulating hormone. It is what the body has made to get eggs to grow. Synthetic FSH is made in the lab and it looks the exact same as the chemical that your brain releases. So you're not taking anything crazy, funny, scary. It's the backbone of every cycle. And this is a recombinant, so FSH, a synthetic version. The two most classic brands are Gonal F and Folistem. Typical doses are in 75 units. This is just old school because originally the only FSH we had was purified from urine and it came in vials like Menopure and it was in 75 units. So you see a lot of us start at 75 unit increments the pens that we use are really easy to adjust, but this is just because this is how things have been studied and how most of us were trained, that your typical starting dose of FSH is going to be 75, 150, 225, 300, 375. Those are just typical nomenclatures. FSH and LH is a medication that has approximately half of each. There's only one version of this. It is Menopure, and yes, it is made from purified menopausal urine. 
It's because when you're in menopause, the brain sends out really high levels of FSH and LH. So if I collect the urine from menopausal women and then I purify it, I can get out the FSH and LH. Wild. Um, FSH stimulates the egg growth, as we said, but LH is an important contributor in the cycle. But not every cycle needs to have this. So in general, Lupron-based cycles, because they are suppressing the brain completely from having any LH, typically need some form of LH. So we like to have Menopure in those cycles with Lupron. In antagonist cycles, meaning you're not starting that ovulation blocker until days five to eight, your body's still making normal LH from the brain, no big deal. And specifically in patients with PCOS who have endogenously high levels of LH, you may not need this. So this may or may not be a part of your protocol. In classic protocols, when you see two numbers, that is FSH slash the FSH LH or the Minipure. So for example, if your dose is 300 slash 150, you're taking 300 of FSH and then 150 of the FSH LH combo. You can also be written in vials. Remember 75 is each vial. So you might see it written four slash two. That's four vials of an FSH, two vials of a Minipure. Now again, FSH doesn't come in vials anymore. It used to when it was called Brevel, but now sometimes we just carry over. There's lots of studies done at these doses and those are our typical starting points. It is rare to have an all Minipure cycle, but that can happen. Some clinics do do that, but typically we know you need much more FSH than LH. And there's also low-dose HCG, which is similar in structure to LH. So if you don't have Minipure, which actually happened this past year, there was a Minipure shortage and we had to use low-dose HCG instead. It is also, like we said, needed for sex hormone production and follicle maturation. And if you don't have any endogenous LH, you're going to need this. So Lupron needs either Minipure or low-dose HCG. Low-dose HCG binds to LH receptors. It's very short-acting, so the hard thing is you have to get it shipped and mix it and use it immediately. It's a little trickier. I know some clinics who use this instead of Minipure, but not my favorite. Clomid is a CIRM, a selective estrogen receptor modulator. It binds to the estrogen receptors of the brain level. The brain interprets that you do not have estrogen and then sends out your natural FSH typically overlapped with FSH in cycles, typically a part of some mini stem protocol or a high responder protocol. So on both ends of the spectrum, you might see Clomid utilized. Think, get your brain to send out all FSH and then you'll take FSH shots. Letrozole is similar. I like to call letrozole and Clomid cousins, but letrozole is an aromatase inhibitor. So it decreases the amount of estrogen that's in the bloodstream. Therefore, the brain says, oh my gosh, there's less estrogen and sends out a higher natural signal of FSH. Letrozole does make your estrogen readings unreliable, which means it's harder to interpret those for the stimulation. It has been used in breast cancer cases for fertility preservation, especially for estrogen-sensitive cancers. We just want lower estrogen levels overall. It has sometimes been used for endometriosis, but that is not standard practice yet. And it can be used for really high responders, specifically patients maybe who could have some FHA or functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. And we know they have to get HCG as their trigger. They won't respond to a Lupron trigger. And we're trying to select out some, not all of their follicles if they also have a very high follicle count. Lupron can also be used in a flare component as a part of the stimulation. 
remember, Lupron binds in the pituitary gland and causes an initial release of all the FSH and LH before it downregulates. Meaning the first days you start taking Lupron, poof, there's this surge of FSH and LH. And somebody who's a poor responder, you can utilize this by doing Lupron, getting that surge, and then starting your FSH a day or so later. It's just a way to try to get there maybe with a little bit less FSH dose overall or utilize the natural properties of the brain, especially for people who have a higher endogenous FSH level. Then Lupron continues throughout the entire protocol as your suppression. So you utilize the flare component and then you keep it as suppression. This is not my favorite protocol for low responders, but a lot of people do like this one. Now we have triggers. Okay, so Lupron, same med, different slide, can also be used as a trigger. This has changed IVF as we know it because PCOS patients who had a really high egg count, really high responders, used to have very poor IVF outcomes because we got so nervous when they had so many eggs and they had really high estrogen levels that they would get ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. So they would be triggered early and they'd have a lot of immature eggs and they'd really poor outcomes. Lupron, as we said, it causes that release of FSH and LH before it downregulates. So when you give it in bolus, causing that flare, if you give it at the time of ovulation, that can mimic the LH surge. And this is one of our number one treatment strategies to prevent OHSS. Now you can't give Lupron like this if you're taking Lupron as your downregulation or your suppression, right? The pituitary gland is downregulated. There's no meds left to flare. So you can only use a Lupron trigger when you're using an antagonist or progesterone as your suppressive agent. So you have to still have that FSH and LH in the pituitary gland for this to work. The only other thing to know is you cannot use this if you have FHA. So functional hypothalamic amenorrhea is when the brain doesn't work for lack of a better way to say it, meaning the pituitary gland is not stimulated by GnRH because it is stressed, because you're ill, because you have an eating disorder, because you know, you're in calorie deficiency, because you're really thin or underweight, because you're a competitive runner. There's a lot of reasons. And sometimes we don't know the exact reason why somebody has FHA. But essentially, there's no storage in the pituitary gland is the easiest way to think about it. And just giving you a bolus of GnRH is not going to make anything happen because that's a part of this disease process. So if we know somebody has FHA, they are not going to respond to a Lupron trigger and we have to use something else. HCG is typically the drug of choice for triggers. It's the classic drug. Remember, HCG is longer acting, but it binds to LH receptors and can cause ovulation. So if you are on a Lupron-based cycle, you will 100% see that your trigger is some version of HCG, Ovidril, Novarel, Pregnil, there, there's more. And the dose of it is going to be different based on your need. Alvaderol syringes are pre-filled at 250. HCG is diluted and then given, can be as low as 1,500, as high as 10,000. This can cause OHSS. The more you give, the higher the risk, and it is longer acting. Remember, OHSS is ovarian hyperstimulation, and you can get quite sick. So we really want to avoid this. The timing of your HCG trigger is so important. Meaning if you do it late, you need to call your clinic ASAP and this can be used with a code trigger. So sometimes we do Lupron and HCG together. A couple extra bonus things or things to think about. HGH or human growth hormone is omnitrope. 
This has been shown in some studies to improve the production of steroid hormones like estrogen and improve egg maturation. In patients who performed worse than expected, so poor response in a prior cycle, in a study, there was an increased number of blastocysts, embryos to biopsy, and an increased number of embryos that were genetically normal when they added on HGH and did nothing different. My partner at Fora actually was the lead author on this study, so I have a huge investment in this, just personally seen it in person. It has not yet been associated with increase in live birth rate, but live birth rate studies take much longer. It makes sense that if you have more normal embryos, you have overall higher chance of things working. But this is also not FDA approved, so insurance is also not going to cover it, even if you have insurance coverage for IVF. Duostim is a type of a double stimulation in the same menstrual cycle. So the idea is that you're going to stimulate like normal. So remember, a normal stimulation is essentially maximizing out your follicular phase and then doing the egg retrieval instead of ovulation. And then you start a luteal stimulation right after the egg retrieval. The idea is that this can be good for poor responders because you can do more cycles back to back and faster. An example is you do estrogen priming starting your luteal phase. You then start your gonadotropins on cycle day two or three, and you do an antagonist cycle with a trigger. You have your egg retrieval, and then five days later, you start the stem with the gonadotropins again. There's other double protocols too. This is not the only one, but this is one that is probably most common in the U.S., all right, and just a few basics, the timeline, you should know what to expect. In general, a lead-in is about two to four weeks, and the stimulation is two weeks. Then the embryos are in culture for a week, and then if you're doing genetic testing, it's going to take about two weeks to get the results. So this takes a lot of time, and then the monitoring is before you begin the stimulation, you're going to have the baseline. During the stimulation is called monitoring, and during the monitoring, again, you have ultrasound with blood work to try to determine if things are going as they should. Estradiol should double every two days approximately. And an estrogen at trigger should be about 200 picograms per milliliter per mature egg. So that's how we use the estrogen to help us guide if we like where we are or not. Mature follicle size does depend on the protocol. In general, 15 to 20 millimeters is mature. Bigger sizes if clomid or letrozole were involved. So there's some specifics per protocol. Biotin, so common in hair, skin, and nails, and collagen and smoothies and all kinds of things, is a no-go. It binds sex hormone receptors. Estrogen's a sex hormone, meaning your estrogen levels are now non-reliable. Small levels of biotin, like 300 or lower, which are in prenatal vitamins, are fine, but please do not take any extra. And then, again, the trigger time is very important. You will use HCG and or Lupron. Make sure that you get everything ready early. If you mess up your trigger, please call your team immediately. Normal trigger times are 35 to 36 hours before the retrieval. The trigger shot finalizes meiosis, so it allows the egg to be retrieved and get to that stage of maturity. The average follicle size, again, does differ person to person. And when we are doing a WTF appointment looking over the cycle, we then are determining what was really the appropriate trigger size for you. It's really important to have a clear plan of what to do next after your cycle. Are you going into a transfer? Are you doing another cycle? Are you waiting and seeing your results? Should you start birth control? Are you starting luteal lupron? What are you doing? Are you at risk for OHSS? Are they trying to prevent it with medications? OHSS 
is ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome associated with very high estrogen levels and vascular instability. This can lead to ascites, pleural effusions, bloating, nausea, vomiting, constipation, kidney damage, and blood clots. It's terrible. It is very serious. The treatment is typically supportive. Electrolytes, fluids, movement, aspirin. You can go and aspirate or do a drainage of the fluid in the abdomen. And then we do have some medications like cabergoline, extra antagonist shots or letrozole that can sometimes help decrease those estrogen levels a little bit faster or stabilize your blood vessels. And the prevention for OHSS is picking an appropriate plan and protocol. Low gonadotropin dose, a Lupron trigger, and a freeze-all cycle, no fresh transfers. Again, HCG is long-acting and it is the enemy when it comes to OHSS. Understanding your expectations really does help to give you an idea about how your protocol is being selected and how and when to get feedback. All right, friends. Well, I hope that this helped you get a greater understanding about IVF protocols, how we use them, how we choose them, red flags, if you're a doctor, what they're trying to choose, and just an overall better idea of what we're trying to do with the IVF process and the questions to ask and what you should be thinking about along the way. Now, a few things. Remember that every doctor is trained different. This field is so unique and so special, and we learn very much from the evidence that always changes and from whoever trained us. Your doctor will have preferences, and I'm not saying that they are wrong if they are different than mine, but I am saying you should be entitled 100% to understand why and what. And most importantly, if you're not getting the outcome that is expected or desired and the exact same protocol is being done with zero changes, why? Remember, there's times I'll do the same protocol because the outcome is, is what I expected. It might not be happy, but it got the eggs to grow that were there. So we're going to do the same thing. And there might be times where I change it up. So asking questions, you know, being a person who can advocate for yourself in your own care, it's hard, but it is needed because IVF is so different at so many places. And I've learned more than anything throughout the context of the course and the over, over 200 people who have signed up, who we've walked through this journey together, just really how different it is and what the patient experience is like. So needless to say, I hope this helped you. Would love to do an IVF specific Q&A coming up. So look out for that on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. I'm not going to get to questions because I babbled on for too long today. But again, you can leave questions on Monday at Natalie Crawford MD or call 657-229-3672. Thank you, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.